Chapter Four of the Holiday Round by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four Two Stories Part One The Making of a Christmas Story as Carried Out in the Best End of Fleet Street. Yuletide London at Yuletide. A mantle of white lay upon the embankment, where our story opens, gleaming and glistening as it caught the rays of the cold December sun. An embroidery of white fringed the trees, and under a canopy of white the proud palaces of Savoy and Cecil reared their silent heads. The mighty river in front was motionless, for the finger of death had laid its icy hand upon it. Above, the hard blue sky stretching to eternity. Below, the white purity of innocence. London in the grip of winter. Editor. Come, I like this. This is going to be good. A cold day, was it not? Author. Very. All at once the quiet of the morning was disturbed. In the distance a bell rang out, sending a joyous paean to the heavens. Another took up the word, and then another, and another. Westminster caught the message from Bartholomew, the son of thunder, and flung it to Giles without, who gave it gently to Andrew by the wardrobe. Suddenly the air was filled with bells, all chanting together of peace and happiness, mirth and jollity, a frenzy of bells. The duke, father of four fine children, waking in his highland castle, heard and smiled as he thought of his little ones. The merchant prince, turning over in his Streatham residence, heard and turned again to sleep with love for all mankind in his heart. The pauper in his workhouse, up betimes, heard and chuckled at the prospect of his Christmas dinner. And on the embankment, Robert Hardrow, with a cynical smile on his lips, listened to the splendid irony of it. Editor. We really are getting to the story now, are we not? Author. That was all local color. I want to make it quite clear that it was Christmas. Editor. Yes, yes, quite so. This is certainly a Christmas story. I think I shall like Robert, do you know? It was Christmas Day. So much, at least, was clear to him. With that same cynical smile on his lips, he pulled his shivering rags about him, and half unconsciously, felt at the growth of beard about his chin. Nobody would recognize him now. His friends, as he had thought them, would pass by without a glance for the poor outcast near them. The women that he had known would draw their skirts away from him in horror. Even Lady Alice. Lady Alice, the cause of it all. His thoughts flew back to the last scene but twenty-four hours ago, when they had parted for ever. As he had entered the hall, he had half wondered to himself if there could be anybody in the world that day happier than himself. 
tall, well-connected, a vice-president of the Tariff Reform League, and engaged to the sweetest girl in England, he had been the envy of all. Little did he think that that very night he was to receive his congé. What mattered it now how or why they had quarrelled? A few hasty words, a bitter taunt, tears, and then the end. A last cry from her. Go, and never let me see your face again. A last sneer from him. I will go, but first give me back the presents I have promised you. Then a slammed door, and silence. What use without her guidance to try to keep straight any more? Bereft of her love, Robert had sunk steadily. Gambling, drink, morphia, billiards, and cigars. He had taken to them all. Until now, in the wretched figure of the outcast on the embankment, you would never have recognized the once spruce figure of handsome Hardrow. Editor it all seems to have happened rather rapidly, does it not? Twenty-four hours ago he had been... Author, you forget that this is short story. Handsome Hardrow. How absurd it sounded now. He had let his beard grow. His clothes were in rags. A scar over one eye testified... Editor. Yes, yes, of course, I quite admit that a man might go to the bad in twenty-four hours, but would his beard grow as... Author, look here, you've heard of a man going grey with trouble in a single night, haven't you? Editor, certainly. Author, well, it's the same idea as that. Editor, ah, quite so, quite so. Author, where was I? Editor, a scar over one eye was just testifying. I suppose he had two eyes in the ordinary way. Testified to a drunken frolic of an hour or two ago. Never before, thought the policeman, as he passed upon his beat, had such a pitiful figure cowered upon the embankment and prayed for the night to cover him. The... He was, er, the editor, yes? Author, to tell the truth, I am rather stuck for the moment. Editor, what is the trouble? Author, I don't quite know what to do with Robert for ten hours or so. Editor, couldn't he go somewhere by a local line? Author, this is not a humorous story. The point is that I want him to be outside a certain house some twenty miles from town at eight o'clock that evening. Editor. If I were Robert, I should certainly start at once. Author. No, I have it. As he sat there, his thoughts flew over the bridge of years, and he was wafted on the wings of memory to other and happier yuletides that Christmas when he had received his first bicycle, that Christmas abroad, the merry house-party at the place of his Cambridge friend, Yuletide at the Towers, where he had first met Alice. Ah! 
Ten hours passed rapidly thus. Author. I put dots to denote the flight of years. Editor. Besides, it will give the reader time for a sandwich. Robert got up and shook himself. Editor. One moment. This is a Christmas story. When are you coming to the robin? Author. I really can't be bothered about robins just now. I assure you all the best Christmas stories begin like this nowadays. We may get to a robin later. I cannot say. Editor. We must. My readers expect a robin, and they shall have it. And a wassail bowl, and a turkey, and a Christmas tree, and a... Author. Yes, yes, but wait. We shall come to little Elsie soon, and then perhaps it will be all right. Editor. Little Elsie. Good. Robert got up and shook himself. Then he shivered miserably, as the cold wind cut through him like a knife. For a moment he stood motionless, gazing over the stone parapet into the dark river beyond, and as he gazed a thought came into his mind. Why not end it all, here and now? He had nothing to live for. One swift plunge, and... Editor. You forget the river was frozen. Author. Dash it, I was just going to say that. But no, even in this, fate was against him. The river was frozen over. He turned away with a curse. What happened afterwards, Robert never quite understood. Almost unconsciously, he must have crossed one of the numerous bridges which span the river and join North London to South. Once on the other side, he seems to have set his face steadily before him, and to have dragged his weary limbs on and on, regardless of time and place. He walked like one in a dream, his mind drugged by the dull narcotic of physical pain. Suddenly he realized that he had left London behind him, and was in more open spaces of the country. The houses were more scattered. The recurring villa of the clerk had given place to the isolated mansion, of the stockbroker. Each residence stood in its own splendid grounds, surrounded by fine old forest trees, and approached by a long carriage sweep. Electric Editor Quite so, the whole forming a magnificent estate for a retired gentleman. Never mind that. Robert stood at the entrance to one of these houses, and the iron entered into his soul. How different was this man's position from his own! What right had this man, a perfect stranger, to be happy and contented in the heart of his family, while he, Robert, stood a homeless wanderer, alone in the cold? Almost unconsciously he wandered down the drive, hardly realizing what he was doing, until he was brought up by the gay lights of the windows. Still without thinking, he stooped down and peered into the brilliantly lit room above him. Within, all was jollity. Beautiful women moved to and fro, and the happy laughter of children came to him. Elsie, he heard someone call, and a childish tremble responded. 
Editor. Now for the Robin. Author. I am very sorry. I have just remembered something rather sad. The fact is that, two days before, Elsie had forgotten to feed the Robin, and in consequence it had died before this story opened. Editor. That is really very awkward. I have already arranged with an artist to do some pictures, and I remember I particularly ordered a robin and a wassail. What about the wassail? Author. Elsie always had her porridge upstairs. A terrible thought had come into Robert's head. It was nearly twelve o'clock. The house party was retiring to bed. He heard the good nights wafted through the open window. The lights went out to reappear upstairs. Presently they too went out, and Robert was alone with the darkened house. The temptation was too much for a conscience already sodden with billiards, drink, and cigars. He flung a leg over the sill and drew himself gently into the room. At least he would have one good meal. He, too, would have his Christmas dinner before the end came. He switched the light on and turned eagerly to the table. His eyes ravenously scanned the contents. Turkey, mince pies, plum pudding, all was there, as in the days of his youth. Editor. This is better. I ordered a turkey, I remember. What about the mistletoe and holly? I rather think I asked for some of them. Author. We must let the readers take something for granted. Editor. I'm not so sure. Couldn't you say something like this? The holly and mistletoe hung in festoons upon the wall? Indeed, even holly and mistletoe hung in festoons upon the wall. Editor. Thank you. With a sigh of content, Hardrow flung himself into a chair and seized a knife and fork. Soon a plate liberally heaped with good things was before him. Greedily he set to work with the appetite of a man who had not tasted food for several hours. "'Good evening,' said a voice. "'Are you Father Christmas?' Robert turned suddenly and gazed in amazement at the white-robed figure in the doorway. "'Elsie,' he murmured huskily, Editor. How did he know? And why huskily? Author. He didn't know. He guessed. And his mouth was full. Are you Father Christmas? repeated Elsie. Robert felt at his chin and thanked heaven again that he had let his beard grow. Almost mechanically he decided to wear the mask, in short, to dissemble. Yes, my dear, he said. I just looked in to know what you would like me to bring you. You're late, aren't you? Oughtn't to have come this morning? Editor. This is splendid. This quite reconciles me to the absence of the robin. But what was Elsie doing downstairs? Author. I am making Robert ask her that question directly. Editor. Yes, but just tell me now between friends. Author. She had left her gollywog in the room and couldn't sleep without her. Editor. I knew that was it. 
"'If I'm late, dear,' said Robert, with a smile, "'why, so are you.' The good food and wine in his veins were doing their work, and a pleasant warmth was stealing over Hardrow. He found, to his surprise, that airy banter still came easy to him. "'To what?' he continued lightly. "'Do I owe the honour of this meeting?' "'I came downstairs for my dolly,' said Elsie. "'The one you sent me this morning, do you remember?' "'Of course I do, my dear.' "'And what have you bought me now, Father Christmas?' Robert started. If he was to play the role successfully, he must find something to give her now. The remains of the turkey, a pair of finger bolts, his old hat, all these came hastily into his mind and were dismissed. He had nothing of value on him. All had been pawned long ago. Stay, the golden locket, studded with diamonds and rubies, which contained Alice's photograph the one memento of her that he had kept, even when the pangs of starvation were upon him. He brought it from its resting place next to his heart. "'A little something to wear around your neck, child,' he said. "'See?' "'Thank you,' said Elsie. "'Why, it opens.' "'Yes, it opens,' said Robert, moodily. "'Why, it's Alice, Sister Alice.' Editor. Ha! Author, I thought you'd like that. Robert leapt to his feet as if he had been shot. Who? he cried. My sister, Alice. Does you know her too? Alice's sister. Heavens! He covered his face with his hands. The door opened. Editor, ha again. "'What are you doing here, Elsie?' said a voice. "'Go to bed, child. Why, who is this?' "'Father Christmas, sister.' "'Editor. How exactly do you work the lisping?' "'Author. What do you mean? Don't children of Elsie's tender years lisp sometimes?' "'Editor. Yes, but just now she said Christmas quite correctly.' "'Author. I am glad you noticed that. That was an effect which I intended to produce. Lisping is brought about by placing the tongue upon the hard surface of the palate, and in cases where the subject is unduly excited, or influenced by emotion, the lisp becomes more pronounced. In this case... Editor. Yes, I see. Send her away, cried Robert, without raising his head. The door opened and closed again. "'Well,' said Alice calmly, "'and who are you? "'You may have lied to this poor child, "'but you cannot deceive me. "'You are not Father Christmas.' "'The miserable man raised his shamefaced head "'and looked haggardly at her. "'Alice,' he muttered, "'don't you remember me?' "'She gazed at him earnestly.' "'Robert, but how changed! "'Since we parted, Alice, much has happened. "'Yet it seems only yesterday that I saw you.' "'Editor. It was only yesterday. "'Author. Yes, yes, don't interrupt now, please. "'To me it has seemed years. 
"'But what are you doing here?' said Alice. "'Rather, what are you doing here?' answered Robert. "'Editor. I think Alice's question was the more reasonable one.' "'My uncle Joseph lives here.' Robert gave a sudden cry. "'Your uncle Joseph? Then I have broken into your uncle Joseph's house?' "'Alice, send me away. Put me in prison. Do what you will to me. I can never hold up my head again.' Lady Alice looked gently at the wretched figure in front of her. "'I am glad to see you again,' she said, "'because I wanted to say that it was my fault.' "'Alice, can you forgive me?' "'Forgive you? If you knew what my life has been since I left you.' If you knew into what paths of wickedness I have sunk, how only this evening, unnerved by excess, I have deliberately broken into this house, your Uncle Joseph's house, in order to obtain food. Already I have eaten more than half a turkey and the best part of a plum pudding. If you knew, I... With a gesture of infinite compassion, she stopped him. "'Then let us forgive each other,' she said with a smile. "'A new year is beginning, Robert.' He took her in his arms. "'Listen,' he said. In the distance, the bells began to ring in the new year. A message of hope to all weary travellers on life's highway. It was New Year's Day. Editor. I thought Christmas Day had started on the embankment.' This would be Boxing Day. Author. I'm sorry, but it must end like that. I must have my bells. You can explain somehow. Editor. That's all very well. I have a good deal to explain as it is. Some of your story doesn't fit the picture at all, and it is too late now to get new ones done. Author. I'm afraid I cannot work to order. Editor. Yes, I know. The artist said the same thing. Well, I must manage somehow, I suppose. Goodbye. Rotten weather for August, isn't it? Part 2 A Matter-of-Fact Fairy Tale Once upon a time there was a king who had three sons. The two eldest were lazy, good-for-nothing young men, but the third son, whose name was Charming, was a delightful youth who was loved by everybody outside his family who knew him. Whenever he rode through the town, the people used to stop whatever work they were engaged upon and wave their caps and cry, Hurrah for Prince Charming! And even after he had passed, they would continue to stop work in case he might be coming back the same way when they would have waved their caps and cried, Hurrah for Prince Charming! again. It was wonderful how fond they were of him. But, alas, his father the king was not so fond. He preferred his eldest son, which was funny of him, because he must have known that only the third and youngest son is ever any good in a family. Indeed, the king himself had been a third son, so he had really no excuse for ignorance on the point. I am afraid the truth was that he was jealous of Charming, because the latter was so popular outside his family. 
Now there lived in the palace an old woman called Countess Caramel, who had been governess to Charming when he was young. When the queen lay dying, the countess had promised her that she would look after her youngest boy for her, and Charming had often confided in Caramel since. One morning, when his family had been particularly rude to him at breakfast, Charming said to her, "'Countess, I have made up my mind, and I am going into the world to seek my fortune.' "'I have been waiting for this,' said the countess. "'Here is a magic ring. Wear it always on your little finger, and whenever you want help, turn it round once, and help will come.' Charming thanked her and put the ring on his finger. Then he turned it round just once, to make sure that it worked. Immediately the oddest little dwarf appeared in front of him. "'Speak, and I will obey,' said the dwarf. Now Charming didn't want anything at all just then, so after thinking for a moment he said, "'Go away.' The dwarf, a little surprised, disappeared. "'This is splendid,' thought Charming, and he started on his travels with a light heart." The sun was at its highest as he came to a thick wood, and in its shade he lay down to rest. He was awakened by the sound of weeping. Rising hastily to his feet, he peered through the trees, and there, fifty yards away from him, by the side of a stream, sat the most beautiful damsel he had ever seen, wringing her hands and sobbing bitterly. Prince Charming, grieving at the sight of beauty in such distress, coughed and came nearer princess he said tenderly for he knew she must be a princess you are in trouble how can i help you fair sir she answered i had thought to be alone but since you are here you can help me if you will i have a a brother but charming did not want to talk about brothers he sat down on a fallen log beside her and looked at her entranced. "'I think you are the most lovely lady in all the world,' he said. "'Am I?' said the princess, whose name, by the way, was Beauty. She looked away from him, and there was silence between them. Charming, a little at a loss, fidgeted nervously with his ring and began to speak. "'Ever since I have known you—' "'You are in need of help?' said the dwarf, appearing suddenly. "'Certainly not.' said Charming angrily, not in the least. I can manage this quite well by myself. Speak, and I will obey. Then go away, said Charming, and the dwarf, who was beginning to lose his grip of things, again disappeared. The princess, having politely pretended to be looking for something while this was going on, turned to him again. Come with me, she said, and I will show you how you can help me. She took him by the hand and led him down a narrow glade to a little clearing in the middle of the wood. Then she made him sit down beside her on the grass, and there she told him her tale. "'There is a giant called Blunderbuss,' she said, "'who lives in a great castle ten miles from here. He is a terrible magician, and years ago, because I would not marry him, he turned my—my my brother into a—' I don't know how to tell you, into a, a tortoise. She put her hands to her face and sobbed again. Why a tortoise, said Charming, knowing that sympathy was useless, but feeling that he ought to say something. I don't know, 
He just thought of it. It... it isn't a very nice thing to be. And why should he turn your brother? Oh, what does it matter why he did it, she cried, as he was about to speak. Why do giants do things? I don't know. Princess, said Charming remorsefully, and kissed her hand, tell me how I can help you. My brother was to have met me here, said Beauty. He is late again, she sighed, and added, the only way in which the enchantment can be taken off him is for someone to kill the giant. But if once the enchantment has stayed on for seven years, then it stays for ever. Here she looked down and burst into tears. The seven years, she sobbed, are over at sundown this afternoon. I see, said Charming thoughtfully. Here is my brother, cried Beauty. An enormous tortoise came slowly into view. Beauty rushed up to him and, having explained the situation rapidly, made the necessary introduction. Charmed, said the tortoise. You can't miss the castle. It's the only one near here, and Blunderbuss is sure to be at home. I need not tell you how grateful I shall be if you kill him. No, I must say, he added, it puzzles me to think how you are going to do it. I have a friend who will help me, said Charming, fingering his ring. Well, I only hope you'll be luckier than the others. The others? cried Charming, in surprise. Yes. Didn't she tell you about the others who had tried? I forgot to, said Beauty, frowning at him. Ah, well, perhaps in that case we'd better not go into it now, said the tortoise. But before you start, I should like to talk to you privately for a moment. He took Charming on one side and whispered, I say, do you know anything about tortoises? Very little, said Charming. In fact, then you don't happen to know what they eat? I'm afraid I don't. Dash it, why doesn't anybody know? The others all made the most ridiculous suggestions. Steak and kidney puddings and shrimp sandwiches and buttered toast. Dear me, the nights we had after the shrimp sandwiches. And the fool swore he had kept tortoises all his life. If I may say so, said Charming, I should have thought that you would have known best. That's the same silly idea they all have, said Tortoise, testily. When Blunderbuss put this enchantment on me, do you suppose he got a blackboard and a piece of chalk and gave me a lecture on the diet and habits of the common tortoise? before showing me out of the front gate? No, he simply turned me into the form of a tortoise and left my mind and soul as it was before. I've got the anatomy of a tortoise, I've got the very delicate inside of a tortoise, but I don't think like one, stupid, else I shouldn't mind being one. I never thought of that. No one does, except me, and I can think of nothing else. He paused and added confidentially, we're trying rum omelettes just now. Somehow I don't think tortoises really like them. However, we shall see. I suppose you've never heard anything definite against them. You needn't bother about that, said Charming briskly. By tonight you will be a man again. And he patted him encouragingly on the shell, and returned to take an affectionate farewell of the princess. As soon as he was alone, Charming turned the ring round his finger, the dwarf appeared before him. "'The same as usual,' said the dwarf, preparing to vanish at the word. He was just beginning to get the swing of it. 
"'No, no,' said Charming hastily. "'I really want you this time.' He thought for a moment. "'I want,' he said at last, "'a sword, one that will kill giants.' Instantly a gleaming sword was at his feet. He picked it up and examined it. "'Is this really a magic sword?' "'It has but to inflict one scratch,' said the dwarf, "'and the result is death.' Charming, who had been feeling the blade, it took his thumb away hastily. "'Then I shall want a cloak of darkness. "'Behold, here it is. "'Beneath this cloak the wearer is invisible to the eyes of his enemies.' "'One more thing,' said Charming. "'A pair of seven-league boots. "'Thank you. "'That is all to-day.' Directly the dwarf was gone, Charming kicked off his shoes and stepped into the magic boots. Then he seized the sword and the cloak and darted off on his lady's behest. He had barely gone a hundred paces before a sudden idea came to him, and he pulled himself up short. Let me see, he reflected. The castle was ten miles away. These are seven-league boots, so that I have come about two thousand miles. I shall have to go back. He took some hasty steps back and found himself in the wood from which he had started. Well, said Princess Beauty, have you killed him? No, no, stammered Charming, not exactly killed him. I was just, just practicing something. The fact is, he added confidentially, I've got a new pair of boots on and... He saw the look of cold surprise in her face and went on quickly. I swear, Princess, that I will not return to you again without his head. He took a quick step in the direction of the castle and found himself soaring over it, turned eleven miles off and stepped back a pace, overshot it again, and arrived at the very feet of the princess. His head, said Beauty eagerly. I, I must have dropped it, said Charming hastily pretending to feel for it. I'll just go and... He stepped off in confusion. Eleven miles the wrong side of the castle, Charming sat down to think it out. It was but two hours to sundown. Without his magic boots, he would get to the castle too late. Of course, what he really wanted to do was to erect an isosceles triangle on a base of eleven miles, having two sides and twenty-one miles each, but this was before Euclid's time. However, by taking one step to the north and another to the southwest, he found himself close enough. A short but painful walk with his boot in his hand brought him to his destination. He had a moment's natural hesitation about making a first call at the castle in his stockinged feet, but consoled himself with the thought that, in life and death matters, one cannot bother about little points of etiquette then donning the magic cloak and with the magic sword in his hand he entered the castle gates for an instant his heart seemed to stop beating but the thought of the princess gave him new courage the giant was sitting in front of the fire his great spiked club between his knees at charming's entry he turned round gave a start of surprise bent forward eagerly a moment and then leant back, chuckling. Like most overgrown men, he was naturally kind-hearted, and had a simple humor. But he could be stubborn when he liked. The original affair of the tortoise seems to have shown him 
both at his best and at his worst. "'Why do you walk like that?' he said pleasantly to Charming. "'The baby is not asleep.' Charming stopped short. "'You see me?' he cried furiously. "'Of course I do. Really, you mustn't expect to come into a house without anything on your feet. Even in a crowd I should have picked you out.' "'That miserable dwarf,' said Charming savagely, "'swore solemnly to me that beneath this cloak "'I was invisible to the eyes of mine enemies. "'But we aren't enemies,' smiled the giant sweetly. "'I like you immensely. "'There's something about you. "'Directly you came in. "'I think it must be love at first sight.' "'So that's how he tricked me. "'Oh, no, it wasn't really like that. "'The fact is, you are invisible beneath that cloak. "'Only, you'll excuse my pointing it out, "'there are such funny bits of you that aren't beneath the cloak. "'You've no idea how odd you look. "'Just a head and two legs and a couple of arms. "'Waist,' he murmured to himself, "'are not being worn this year. "'But Charming had had enough of talk. "'Gripping his sword firmly, he threw aside his useless cloak, dashed forward and with a beautiful lunge pricked his enemy in the ankle victory he cried waving his magic sword above his head thus is beauty's brother delivered the giant stared at him for a full minute then he put his hands to his sides and fell back shaking in his chair her brother he roared well of all the her brother he rolled on the floor in a paroxysm of mirth her brother oh you you'll kill me her b b b brother her b b her b b the world seemed suddenly very cold to charming he turned the ring on his finger well said the dwarf i want said charming curtly to be back at home riding through the streets on my cream palfrey amidst the cheers of the populace at once an hour later, Princess Beauty and Prince Udo, who was not her brother, gazed into each other's eyes, and Beauty's last illusion went. "'You've altered,' she said slowly. "'Yes, I'm not really much like a tortoise,' said Udo, humorously. "'I meant since seven years ago. You're much stouter than I thought. Time hasn't exactly stood still with you, you know, Beauty.' "'Yet you saw me every day and went on loving me. "'Well, er... "'He shuffled his feet and looked away. "'Didn't you? "'Well, you see, of course I wanted to get back, you see. "'And as long as you... "'I mean, if we... "'If you thought we were in love with each other, "'then, of course, you were ready to help me. "'And so... "'You're quite old and bald. "'I can't think why I didn't notice it before.' "'Well, you wouldn't while I was a tortoise,' said Udo pleasantly. "'As tortoises go, I was really quite a youngster. "'Besides, anyhow, one never notices baldness in a tortoise.' "'I think,' said Beauty, weighing her words carefully, "'I think you've gone off a good deal in looks in the last day or two. "'Charming was home in time for dinner, "'and next morning he was more popular than ever.' outside his family, as he rode through the streets of the city. But Blunderbuss lay dead in his castle. 
You and I know that he was killed by the magic sword, yet somehow a strange legend grew up around his death. And ever afterwards, in that country, when one man told his neighbor a more than ordinarily humorous anecdote, the latter would cry, in between the gusts of merriment, "'Don't! You'll make me die of laughter!' And then he would pull himself together and add, with a sigh, "'Like blunderbuss!' End of chapter 4